0: James L. Kugel, star professor emeritus of Hebrew literature at Harvard University, is one of the most influential biblical scholars of the present era. In his wide-ranging body of work, both painstakingly researched and written in clear and compelling language, Professor Kugel has illuminated the Hebrew Bible, its sources and methods, but also the world and the cultures that produced it. In How to Read the Bible, for which he received the National Jewish Book Award in 2007, Professor Kugel explored not only the Bible as an anthology gradually edited and redacted over millennia, but also the rise of modern biblical scholarship and how it influenced the way we read the Bible, and thus, as a result, the way we understand ourselves and the wider world. In the Bible as it was... Professor Kugel analyzed biblical passages through their ancient interpreters, then traced the evolution of the interpretation through the history of thought and Jewish exegesis. In numerous other books, scholarly articles, and through decades as a renowned teacher and lecturer, Professor Kugel has exerted a profound influence on biblical scholars and scholarship. He joins me today to discuss his new book, The Great Shift, Encountering God in Biblical Times, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Professor Kugel, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So, in the foreword to this book, you refer to it as your last book. Why? <laughs>
1: well, I'm getting a little long in the tooth, uh, teeth, uh, but uh, uh, I, I guess um, I, I, I'm, I i was not quite as uh, as straightforward. I really meant. Um, It's uh, my last or probably my last uh, uh, book aimed at a wide audience. The next thing on my desk is supposed to be a a, a rather scholarly, boring commentary on uh, 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 an obscure text called The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, a a Jewish text going back to about the first, maybe even second century before the common era. Uh Uh-huh. So I have to sit down, and I have a lot of that done, but I, I do think that's
0: uh, still on, on on the way. So, so you have, um, throughout your career, really produced uh, detailed biblical scholarship, as I mentioned, but you've also written uh, for a broader audience. Um, which category does this book fall into, or does it fall into both? Because it has an extensive uh, bibliography and footnotes, and it's a wide-ranging but very accessible book.
1: Well, nice of you to say. I, that's what I intended. I really um, uh, wrote in parallel the extensive footnotes and the text itself. Uh, the text itself is really meant to uh, speak to, uh, you know, every reader, and I, I, I don't think it's uh, it's hard to get through. I wrote the extensive footnotes because a lot of these questions that I deal with are still, you know, open to debate. and. Here and there, I wanted to put in my own ideas, but mostly aimed at my own colleagues rather than the general reader.
0: Right, right. Now, uh, just so our listeners know right off the bat, the the title of the book is The Great Shift, Encountering God in Biblical Times. And what is the shift that the title refers to?
1: Well, hmm, uh, I, I guess the beginning of the story goes back to... Um, Lots of uh, pretty ancient biblical narratives that talk about how human beings, uh, Abraham and Moses and so forth, uh, actually encountered God. And in these narratives, God is presented in a certain way. And then as time goes on, these encounters uh, become different. Um, and so I really wanted to, you know, they, they become sort of more abstract, and I wanted to try to understand how that happened and, and why. That's really the whole purpose of the book. It's, it's about this kind of shift in, in what it means to encounter God, I guess, to go from, you know, the time of Abraham to the sermon you might have heard in church or synagogue last week mm-hmm. and how different those two gods are.
0: And so, people, uh, characters in the Bible really do experience God in immediate and sometimes overpowering ways, but it seems that they don't always understand that that's what's happening. Is that right?
1: Well, that's right. There are all these um, narratives that involve angels. I should say, parenthetically, um, I've never really been happy with the term angel because the Hebrew word malach, uh, which is used really means more of a you know messenger, some somebody or something that is sent, and, uh, um, and, and when we think of angels, I guess we think of those people with the uh, flowing robes and you know the halos on their heads
0: uh, right, right.
1: that come with your calendars <laughs> from your <synagogue. laughs> right. but uh, but that's not how they are in the Bible. They you know seem mostly to look just like ordinary human beings. And at first, um, that's what you know um, Abraham and company think they are. Um, and then, after a while, um, they, they they seem to have this kind of period of confusion that they themselves are in a kind of fog. As it's the most obvious things that somehow escape their attention, and they don't realize that this person that they're talking to isn't like an ordinary person. And then. After this moment of confusion, which can actually drag on for a while, they um, they suddenly realize that um, this isn't just an ordinary human. Being. And at that point, that um, messenger, that uh, angel, uh, kind of begins to fade, and uh, at least often, and then it's just God's voice talking—a kind of disembodied voice uh, talking to um, Abraham, etc. That happens so much. I mean, I think I gave seven or eight examples of that um, in, in this book. That happens so much that, uh, it, you know, there seems to be a pattern here. And it may be, as I said, that, you know, uh, narratives sometimes obey conventions. But the question is really, what is, the, what is the convention trying to tell us? What is the nature of this sort of uh, encounter with God
0: Right. So the book notices and and you give beautiful and detailed analyses of these encounters and then something changes. Something happens. And this is the the this something is what gives its book your title and I I would characterize it as a gradual shift away from uh, immediate and in many ways intimate encounters with God to encounters that require more and more interpretation, either by uh, the individuals experiencing it or by the culture as a whole or by the narrator or by by the reader or perhaps all of the above. What are the essences or motive forces of the shift? You just noted correctly, I think, that uh, perhaps these narratives were just obeying convention. But were conventions changing? What was changing in the ancient Near East, that might have been causing this shift in the way God was experienced or depicted?
1: Well, that that is indeed the question that the book is out to answer. And uh, it seems that a lot of things changed um, uh, separately and altogether had the, this, um, you know, created this great shift. I should say, in parentheses, I hesitated for a while about what the what to call the book. And, uh, and I, I guess I like shift better than change, which was another uh, idea that we batted about mm-hmm. uh, because um, a shift to me, I don't know, maybe it's just because of baseball and football, but it seems <laughs> to involve more than just, you know, one moving part. And, and that is really the story I'm after, that different things uh, changed and they all seem to be symptomatic uh, of a kind of fundamental change in in what is really, I, I guess, the um, unspoken subject of this book, the sense of self, as it's called, uh-huh. by anthropologists
0: mm-hmm. and psychologists and so forth. You have consulted these other disciplines, which is uh, quite interesting. You've gone into not only anthropology and psychology, as you said, but neuroscience in order to understand this shift. What what did those disciplines, how did those disciplines provide you with additional perspective or information on what constituted this shift?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, the sense of self uh, as a term really means the kind of idea of uh, who I am, what my mind can do and and not do that people carry around in, in their heads. And um, it's Everybody has a sense of self, but they vary greatly across the globe and over the centuries. And I guess most people, I include myself in that, when they read these stories in the Bible, they assume that the people involved have the same sense of self that that we have. Uh, but there's really no reason to assume that, uh, since even now in lots of the globe, in uh, you know, lots of different societies... Um, people do have uh, uh, strikingly different senses of self. If you go back uh, uh, for a few centuries, even the modern Western sense of self starts to look uh, rather different. So what I wanted to do in this book was to uh, try to figure out how people in the time of uh, Abraham or Moses thought about themselves. What did they think could happen to them or what their minds were and how that's a bit
0: different from what we do mm-hmm. and it does seem from uh, what reading i've done in cognitive psychology and neuroscience that we are discovering from a scientific perspective that we are in fact to use your term semi-permeable selves in other words um Western epistemology has given us an idea that we are masters of our own fate and that we are self-contained, and you talk about the evolution of the idea of the soul as something individual and almost customized and implanted within someone, but neuroscience has begun to suggest that we sort of inter-exist with others. Are there specific passages in the Hebrew Bible where you see that happening and that informed your work in this book?
1: Well... I I, I mean, just reading along in Genesis, sometimes, you know, one of the things that that struck me was how different the um, uh, kind of sense of self that Joseph has is from, you know, the other stories in Genesis. The other stories in Genesis, it just seems to be um, uh, assumed that some... uh, External force, Uh, God or uh, uh, elsewhere in uh, Jewish writings, wicked angels and so forth, they are external, but they can kind of penetrate your uh, brain and uh, plant words in your mouth, as happens with uh, Israel's prophets, or, uh, you know, cause you to behave in a way uh, that you might not have wanted to. Uh, That also happens uh, a good bit Mm -hmm. Uh, Going back to this uh, book I mentioned, I might you know someday finish this commentary on it, uh, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So that was really I, I, I think that was what really got got me going on this subject because this is a book by uh, an author who's very interested in the question of why people sin. You know there are basically two explanations for human sinfulness. Uh, in the book, uh, uh-huh. one of them is that somehow there's uh, something inside of us that you know what is called later on in Judaism the yetzer or yetzer hara,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: impulse to do evil, and that just somehow um, wins out now and then, and so we find ourselves doing things that we really didn't want to do, but you know it was just in there pushing us to do this, right. Uh, The other explanation is that uh, Satan, uh, or some Satan-like wicked angel, uh, has a bunch of uh, emissaries, they're not called malachim, they're called Ruchot spirits, Um, and he emits these spirits so they all have different names there's the spirit of uh, fornication and the spirit of anger and the spirit of and so forth and he sends these out to people and they they're able to kind of penetrate our brains and make us do what we do i i i think i hope i'm not overreaching here but i think most modern westerners would say, well, no contest. The first is what's really going on. We're responsible right. for what we do. Right. But what's so interesting about this book is the author just can't make up his mind. Sometimes he says the one, sometimes he says the other, and a lot of times he tries to combine the two into um, one explanation that really doesn't hold together. So uh-huh. that is what got me to thinking about um you know what? What we really believe uh, about ourselves, it's, as you were saying, yeah. Um, we, we nowadays think of ourselves in the modern West as altogether self-enclosed, and uh, nothing from the outside really gets in. Somebody, uh, I don't know who, uh, coined the um, acronym for our particular mentality: the weird world where. W stands for Western, E stands for educated, I for industrialized, and so forth. I forget the other two. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess developed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in any case, uh, we are very different from uh, most of the rest of the world, and we're very different from our own past. Um, m- maybe uh, 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 we have as much of a self-created uh, picture of. What we are like and what our minds are, um, as uh, any other period in human history or any other part of the globe right now, right? And as anthropologists will certainly tell you, uh, there's a great deal of variety even now from
0: society to society. You talk, uh, and we talked about this for a moment earlier. Perhaps one character, one biblical character who really embodies or personifies. The shift in the perspective of God is the character of Joseph, for whom you note that God is not really an intimate encounter, but more of a long-range planner who arranges but doesn't intervene in human affairs. And you note that uh, Joseph cites the hand of God in the events that transpire uh, in his life story and the story of his family, but he never addresses God directly. What does this tell us about the changing nature of God and how much it was affected by changes in culture and society? Because Joseph really, as you know, embodies uh, a massive shift in the location and the culture of uh, Israelite worship.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you said it very well. The fact is, Joseph never prays. You know, he's in lots of tough straits. Uh, but he always, you know, his own pluck and and uh, determination gets him out. You know, his brothers want to kill him, and somehow he survives that, and he's sold as a slave, and, and he rises to the top of the household staff, and then he's falsely accused of attempted rape, and he's down again. And he comes out of all of these things, really, thanks to his own optimistic and determined uh, nature, but he doesn't... Uh, he he doesn't turn to God for help. This is very surprising in the you know context of the stories around it, and um, and I guess it would have been uh, surprising even to uh, later readers, where it was really kind of conventional. If you're if you're in tough straits, you turn to God, and and then afterwards you offer thanks. He never thanks God for anything. Hmm. Um, so uh, this was clearly a, a somewhat different sense of self and and, and a sense of uh, of uh, what the encounter between a God and humans is as you said he's really the long range planner the person who arranges everything in advance and then kind of sits back and watch what watches reality unfold
0: right but does uh, I wonder does joseph's story reflect the different ways that we think about prayer. In other words, did earlier biblical figures pray the way contemporary worshipers pray? Did the more intimate encounters indicate a God who could just be approached in a non-liturgical and in relatively informal and spontaneous setting? Or does Joseph really represent a departure in praxis?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very uh, good question. And I have to say, uh, in general... Uh, uh, I'm not, I haven't been very successful about tracing a kind of straight line development. This great shift, you know, goes back and forth. And even at the end of the biblical period, in the time of the uh, testaments of the 12 patriarchs, uh, these people are, you know, their minds are still uh, penetrable um, uh, by uh, e- evil forces. God doesn't seem to enter into their minds, but mm-hmm. um, that, um, uh, that did you know, surprisingly long uh, survive in, in uh, the human sense of self, at least in ancient Israel. But um, you know, but as far as Joseph is concerned, um, it's it's true. He uh, uh, he makes reference to to God and Pharaoh at one point says, "I'm looking for somebody. and somebody is, is there, anybody in whom the spirit of God resides more mm-hmm. than in." this fellow Joseph. But even that is kind of far away from uh, the other figures we see in Genesis and Exodus. Uh, there, I, I mean, uh, to begin with, they're really not eager to meet God.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: They, you know, I, I, I think I said in the book, it's a little bit like living in the modern Middle East. You know, if, if you're really desperate for help, uh, you might turn to the government but you never know what that's going to get you involved in. <laughs> <laughs> right, and uh, you know I think that was uh, uh, that was uh, true in, in Joseph's days. Anyway, um, those um, uh, other uh, biblical figures um, uh, do turn to God. But in as I think about it, I, I mean there are narratives, but there are also uh, prayers that we have in the Book of Psalms and. Uh, other representations of people in you know, in the prophets, of, of calling out to God for for help or receiving messages from God, God to distribute. All those have to be kind of considered together in order to get a you know, composite picture of what was
0: going right. on. Right, and I did uh, I did want to turn to the subject of the Book of Psalms and the heartfelt but still often more liturgically formal approach to God. Uh, depicted in the psalms the cries for help that are that are so prevalent in the psalms uh, indicate and i think you say this in the book a god who might be more distant and who is summoned by the cry of the victim and i'm wondering how your research on and your exploration of the psalms reflects on the idea of the semi-permeable self now, clearly, the psalms are are written over a long period of time and redacted over a long period of time have numerous authors uh, at least that 's what uh, biblical uh, scholarship has has deduced on the basis of the evidence but the But the question is to what extent uh, do the psalms reflect and to what extent do they influence the gradual erosion of the semi permeable self and I guess that question's true about the Bible as a whole. To what extent do you see the semi-permeable self as a creation of the Bible, and to what extent is it eroded by the biblical sense of self, if one can use that broad term?
1: Right, uh, and that's a good broad term to use. I think what ha- what um, the picture that emerges from um, the oldest um, psalms that we can identify is uh, of a God who's... Uh, well, I like to say, just on the other side of the curtain mm-hmm. that separates um, uh, the ordinary from the extraordinary, uh, God is on the extraordinary size, side, and and uh, and He's not far away. It's just the other side of the curtain. The problem is, uh, you have to get Him to want to act, and uh, and uh, that's why people who pray describe in, in sometimes painful detail um, uh, just uh, how difficult and what difficulties they, uh, they are, uh, they are and, and how much they need divine help. I guess the uh, operating uh, assumption is if you're not absolutely desperate, don't bother calling me because <laughs> I've got a lot of people. Um, but he's not distant. He's just on the other side of that curtain. And then as time goes on, God, in general, seems to become more and more remote. Think again about uh, Joseph's God, sort of the long-range planner, who is, you know, apparently far away. And and the reason why Joseph never prays is because if God has planned everything out in advance, there's really no reason uh, or possibility to ask him to change his plans. Those uh, mm-hmm. those are eternal. Um but that wasn't the way it was in in an earlier day. and and as as time goes on, um, God does seem to become more and more remote. One of the interesting yes. things is uh, you know the whole story of of prophecy in in the so-called classical prophets, you know, people like uh, uh, Hosea or Amos or Isaiah, uh, God speaks directly to them. He says, yeah. "Here's what I want you to say," yeah. and uh, and then they have to go and and say it, even if it's painful or in some cases results in are being ostracized. But it's all right. Uh, right. This is what I want you to say. Later on, it doesn't happen like that. Now, God no longer has in late biblical prophecy. He doesn't have direct contact with um, um, with the prophet, an angel, or some sort of representative. Uh, Will talk to the human being, but God seems to be in highest heaven while um, while this is taking place. So that certainly is sig- a significant Absolutely. change.
0: Absolutely, and I want to come back to the subject of prophecy, but I'm I'm interested to hear more from you about the text. Uh, you know, the text critical approach has revealed the different, at least the documentary hypothesis holds that there are different sources that we can clearly identify as becoming sort of interwoven into the text. That is the Hebrew Bible, and in the P-sourced, the P-source, the the priestly uh, documents in the Bible reflect um, a sort of cold and impersonal deity, one that uses impersonal and, if one could say, even almost bureaucratic language, uh, and that, and this reflects, I think, uh, the institutional institutionalization of sacrifice and the creation and ongoing maintenance of a sacrificial cult. Do you talk in the book, and can you tell us about it, about how sacrifice uh, influences the notion of the semi-permeable self and how it reflects or influences the distant God?
1: Well, I I think um, uh, sacrifice just always was the principal means of communication between human beings and deities throughout the ancient near East. Uh, uh, I, you know, people thought about you know turning to God with words as as really you know the last choice. if if you couldn't if you if all you could do was speak, then that was just words and it didn't really count. What counted was offering a sacrifice and we certainly, see you know early narratives that refer to individual people even if they didn't have a temple they you know went to an altar built an altar um and uh and then lifted up their voice but also their sacrifice uh, to god um but uh i think if you go and i have to say the priesthood was an institution. These, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who were connected to this sacred building or other sacred buildings, and they, um, you know, their business was offering sacrifices. Um, that was so much the case that, uh, again, this isn't anything I discovered, but modern scholars have realized that uh, that priestly texts really don't talk about um, praying to God. Uh, their whole um, operation is based on offering these sacrifices, and Jews continued to sacrifice uh, in the uh, Jerusalem temple until its uh, destruction by the Romans in the first century of the Common Era. So um, that, in a sense, uh, never changed. But what did change along with that was um, uh, the nature of the prayers that people spoke and where they spoke them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one and thing that uh, go ahead
0: no no please please continue
1: i was going to say one thing that uh, that uh, uh, scholars have noticed is on um, with psalms that are um, dateable uh, to a very uh, late period in you know in second temple times let's say um these psalms uh often um, don't they don't seem to be asking for anything. They just want to have, you know, the person who's speaking them or the people who are speaking them um, stress that uh, they're just offering praise to God. Ah, that, you know, that doesn't involve uh, sacrifices or anything, but just uh, um, speaking as an individual or as a group and offering verbal praise to God it seems like they're just kind of trying to establish contact with this now rather remote deity,
0: which is interesting uh, because my next question is about uh, the, the emergence that you talk about uh, of a religion of laws and the way that God is depicted as a kind of conquering suzerain first and foremost, because he demanded absolute loyalty And the avoidance of any foreign entanglements. So with the emergence and the creation of a religion of laws, which uh, goes hand in hand with the creation of uh, an established sacrificial cult, we have uh, a a cultural context in which suzerainty treaties are the way uh, societies are governed. And this is the way God comes to be seen. Uh, This section in your book is proximate to a section about a new inwardness and the emerging concept of the soul. I would just wonder if you could talk about those two ideas in conjunction with or juxtaposition with each other. Is there some sort of relationship between the emergence of a religion of laws and the new inwardness, the less permeable self that you that you talk about emerging?
1: Well, uh, I think the the idea of of uh, uh, a religion of laws has to be seen in its uh, you know broader ancient near eastern uh, uh context mm-hmm. the The laws that um uh, that uh, you know we have in, involve all sorts of um sorts of things you know criminal law and cultic law that's things relating to Um, The offering of sacrifices and what goes on in a temple Um, relations between, you know, individuals, mothers and fathers uh, with their children and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Anyway, those are uh, I I think in in the broader context, this is a rather weird idea. You (laughs) serve uh, you serve God in Mesopotamia by offering sacrifices. And, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen, but you need to kind of maintain this ongoing service of God and just hope for the best. But there's nothing about, uh, you know, uh, serving me v- via doing all these things that I demand of you. Uh, in fact, that verb, la'avod, to uh, to serve or to work for, and you know, I forget about the lexical item, but the idea uh, is certainly uh, uh, one throughout the ancient Near East, but it generally refers to offering sacrifices. Suddenly, in the book of Deuteronomy and a few other places, you have um, uh, people who are serving God by keeping these laws. So that, you know, was a a very, very uh, important uh, change. And along with that, what what you mentioned is is um, the kind of evolution of the of the soul. Uh, this was really uh, quite uh, interesting for me to uh, observe. You know, mm-hmm. souls have always been around, right? But that isn't really true. Uh, there were basically three Hebrew words that uh, designated um, or are I should say three Hebrew words that are translated as soul in the Bible. Um, but in the earliest parts of the Bible, they really, uh, you know, d- don't mean soul for the most. Right. Part. They mean uh, me myself,
0: you know, mm-hmm. and uh,
1: or a, a a whole person. In fact, uh, all living things, you know, that can be called nefesh. Uh, yeah. Um, in in any case, um, uh, that's the way things seemed for a long time. And then, after a while, suddenly these words seem to refer not to the whole person but to something special inside the person a special part of me um, and one that eventually becomes uh, separable from me it's it, it, it can leave my body uh, uh, when I die or leave my body every night while I'm asleep and uh, and uh, so that was a, 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 a significant um, uh, change in in the in the whole idea, and, and, and it became obscured because since those same words now meant soul, you could go back to earlier parts of the Bible when they didn't and be mistaken and think that uh, that's what they well, that's what they were meaning. So all over the Bible are souls that are really not souls; they're just huh. you know, me. Yeah. But uh, but then they become this kind of special thing. And uh, I guess I I couldn't stop from suggesting that um, <laughs> this uh, uh, this new special part of me had something to do uh, with a uh, rather more remote uh, God.
0: Mm-hmm. In uh, your section in the book, uh, Chapter 12, on remembering God, you spend some time and shed really interesting insight on one of the most perplexing stories in the Bible, and that is the story of, of Moses striking the rock, and then immediately being told by God uh, that since you did not show your trust in me, sanctifying me in the Israelite sight, you will not lead this congregation to the land that I'm giving them. That's in numbers chapter twenty. Um, can you talk a little bit about your exegesis of and your understanding of that chapter, and what it tells us about uh the changing conception of and relationship with God? and the changing conception of the self?
1: Well, I, I, I should perhaps start by saying a modern biblical scholar, and I certainly wear that hat from time to time, right. uh, would say, uh, well, these are, these are just, they're, they're doublets. There are two versions of the story, one in the book of Exodus, and one in Numbers. And in Exodus, uh, it's, um, uh, you know, it's an altogether good thing. God, You know, the people are... Uh, don't have enough water to drink, and then God tells Moses to strike this rock and he strikes the rock and the water comes out and everything's fine and then the second uh, occurrence forty years later or so uh, they're nearing the uh, you know their entrance into uh, the land that has been given to their ancestors and then uh, there's not enough water and so God tells Moses to. This is tricky, and I perhaps shouldn't get uh, caught up in details. But basically, he says uh, for them to uh, strike this rock, uh, Moses and Aaron, and they do so. And then God says, "Well, because you didn't show your face in me, um, to uh, presume to be uh, watching Israelites, uh, I'm not going to let you go into uh, the promised land." Uh, if if one takes these as as um, purposefully uh, uh, differentiated, one could see that uh, what the real problem. I'm sorry, lots of biblical commentators talk about this, and they want to know what what was so bad about what Moses did, and there are very ans- answers. But the most obvious answer is what the text says: that you didn't you didn't um, uh, call on God to do this miracle, but you acted as if uh, uh, as if uh, you and Aaron were uh, were doing it all. Ourselves and, and that was a classic instance of forgetting God, and because you forgot God, He's not going to let you go into uh, the land of Israel.
0: Yeah. Okay. And in and in terms of one other very interesting passage that I hope you'll talk about is when you talk about King David and thinking about oneself. King David, as you note, is one of the most interesting. Characters in the Bible, uh, he thinks about himself, but one couldn't really call what he does uh, a profound kind of self-reflection. Uh, he seduces Bathsheba, arranges for the death of her husband in battle, and the prophet Natan points out to him that there will be consequences for this. He's profoundly remorseful, but it's hard for us to recognize in what he goes through, Anything that we would really consider profound self-reflection. How does the character of David and the narrative of the story of David help us think about the concept of the self and the shift that you talk about in this book?
1: Right. Well, David, I, I agree. With he is such a fascinating figure in the Bible, uh, but um, in, in 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 this case, he's already you know he's he's. Committed a terrible sin, in, and and the prophet, you know, tells him uh, that it is terrible, and that he's going to be punished, and uh, and that the baby that is going to be born to Bathsheba uh, will die. And um, you know, this guy's a tough guy; he's a guerrilla fighter, mm-hmm. but this just uh, totally, you know, uh, horrifies him and. He does, you know, lies on the floor and won't eat and, you know, does whatever he can to stave off this horrible punishment. And the baby dies. And then, you know, he says, "Okay, well, let's have something to eat now. (laughs) You know that. uh, you know, the people, well, you know, aren't you going to mourn? I mean, you know, this is your baby who's died. So look, I'm not going to see that kid again until I uh, go to the underworld after my death. Uh, there's no point in you know my w- w- weeping and wailing now. I did that in order to to uh, try to stave off the uh, punishment that was assigned, but since it's been carried out, it's over. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a this is a guy who doesn't seem to be. Uh, Uh, reflective of a, uh, you know, uh, kind of complex psyche, such as one encounters uh, uh, later on. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I think that's another piece of evidence to put in this evolving story.
0: Right. Uh, Finally, I want to ask you uh, how this will change, how you see this changing the direction of your scholarship and perhaps even uh, Jewish biblical scholarship writ large, the idea um, that you really explore in this book um, has led you in uh, into a sort of interdisciplinary form of work uh, that's very intriguing, but that uh, many might uh, uh, be hesitant to follow because of their lack of expertise or experience or the, or the breadth of interest and knowledge uh, that, for example, you have, how would you like to see scholarship uh, and observance uh, incorporate these ideas and uh, into the future?
1: Well, scholarship and observance are two quite different things.
0: And I, and I asked you that question. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry to ask a, Uh, two-part question Um, but i but i hope you will not mind addressing both and you can address one at a time but you're uh i wanted to ask you both as someone who lives an observant jewish life and someone who is a a prominent scholar
1: well i i guess i i would answer uh about the, the the first part I, I don't think there's anything um, uh, uh, that I say that is not I, – I think I'm, I may be about a week ahead of uh, uh, the crest of the wave. There are a lot of people now who are interested in trying to figure out, trying to look at these biblical texts again and see uh, what that can tell us. Uh, from the standpoint of a you know modern anthropologist or you know someone who's uh, acquainted with you know uh, even ultimately neuroscience mm-hmm. and, and and what they can say about what's what's going on um, in the evolving sense of self um, that I tried to document in in this book. So I just think that's where scholarship is is about to go, or is maybe even going right now. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, as an observant Jew, um, I think that uh, uh, that ultimately we we look to um, you know the very foundation of Judaism, which is you know commandments, mitzvot um that 's what this religion consists of, and the idea of it is uh, is that um in in uh approaching god seeking to uh, to use the terms of my title to encounter god uh people uh well as i put it, put it in the book you can't walk into god's office and put your feet up on the desk he's not your friend uh and so um, the, the traditional Jewish notion of how to come before God is to uh, to come as as His servant. You know, actually in Hebrew it's the same word as slave, which sounds pretty debased. But as I always used to tell students, I guess it all depends who your employer is. <laughs> <laughs> in in this case, uh, you know that that's that, that's the very essence of Judaism. You say, well, you know i i i want to come before you in order to uh to serve you i once um quoted this uh, uh sort of Mashal rabbinic parable about the guy who um who wants to see the king and he he goes and um stands outside the palace but of course there's a big uh, metal gate all around it and so um you know he can just stand there and he does after a few hours the king comes out of the palace and he's really thrilled i got to see the king and the next day he goes back and but the next day is rainy and so he doesn't see the king and the day after that anyway time goes on and what was first thrilling to him becomes uh, frustrating and finally one of the king's servants who spotted him through the uh, uh, rails of this uh, uh, you know, fence um, comes up to him and says well you're you're doing the wrong thing you, you know if you really want to see the king you ought to go to the royal employment office and fill out a form you know get a job doesn't really matter what uh, you know sweeping up or, or being a security guard but uh, that way you'll get to see God all the time and he may even get to notice you And uh, I I think that that's the whole idea of mitzvot in Judaism, that it's Mm -hmm. your ticket inside the
0: palace. I think that is a wonderful note on which to end uh, a delightful discussion. I have been talking today with James L. Kugel, the star professor emeritus of Hebrew literature at Harvard University, and we have been discussing his new book, The Great Shift, Encountering God in Biblical Times, published in 2017 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Professor Kugel, it's been a real privilege. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah.